Lord, I thank you that you are alive, that your grave is open, that you're not in there. I thank you that you are in the business of drawing men to yourself from one end of this earth to the other. Lord, last week we read about an Ethiopian who was brought to Christ, and we know that Ethiopia back then is modern-day Sudan. Today we saw a testimony from a Sudanese brother who was saved by the same Jesus. And so I praise you for your work in this world, and I pray that you would draw our attention now to your word as we hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Alrighty. So, again, we're going to be in Acts 9, and we're going to read about one of the most amazing conversion stories in the history of the Church of Jesus Christ. The conversion of one of the most hardened, blind, cruel opponents of Christianity. A man named Shaul, Saul. Saul was a brilliant, brilliant scholar of the Old Testament, of the Bible. He was a student of the renowned Hebrew scholar Gamaliel. You wanted your sons to study under Gamaliel if they were going to be rabbis. And Saul was a zealous persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ. When we read about the story of Stephen getting murdered back in Acts chapter 6, 7, and 8, you may remember the conclusion to the Stephen story. Acts 8, verse 3, Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. You weren't even safe in your own home. He's going door to door, not evangelizing. Door to door arresting. Christians face this all over the world, even today. Dragging men and women out and putting them in prison. Well, for the last two weeks, after we read that little sneak preview of the story of Saul in Acts 8, verse 3, now that we have kind of a two-week I don't want to say detour, but it like made an interlude between the Saul stories, and it was a little breakaway to look at the life of Philip. And we have two stories about Philip. Philip in Samaria, and then Philip uh, ministering to a Sudanese guy in Ethiopia uh, from modern-day Sudan. And now we go back, and the camera pans back to this Saul. Let's read together. Acts 9. Meanwhile, while all these things were going on with Philip, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. It's a town 130 miles north of Israel, of Judah, in Jerusalem. So that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. 
I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among all who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night, lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem... He tried to join the disciples there, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul, on his journey, had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews. Those are the same guys that Stephen had a run-in with. And they tried to kill him. Verse 30. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. So this is the story of Saul, 31 verses here. We're going to work through it in four steps today. We're going to look at Saul's quest, Saul's quest to murder Christians, put them in jail. We're going to look at Saul's conversion. We'll look at Saul's calling. What is he called to do? And finally, we'll look at Saul's ministry, his preaching. So first, verses 1 to 2, Saul's quest here at the beginning of the chapter. We already read a little bit back in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, about 
Saul's quest before he knew Jesus, it was to stamp out Christianity. And he's still doing it in chapter 9, verse 1. He's breathing out murderous threats. And his method of persecuting Christians was to imprison them. But he didn't want to stop with jail. He wanted them all dead. Later on in the book of Acts, we actually get two other places in Acts where Paul shares his conversion story. Acts 22 and Acts 26. I'm going to read the stories, snippets of both of them for you. Acts 22, you can flip there if you want. In Acts 22, verses 3 to 5, Saul, who's now called Paul, he describes his story in his own words. And he's, he's giving this story in Acts 22 to a group of Jews who are in Jerusalem trying to... Well, they've just tried to kill him, and the Romans have calmed the crowds down and given him a chance to speak for himself. And so he starts off his talk with them this way. Uh, his talk ends with them trying to kill him again, but he has a moment of silence, and he says, Listen, guys, I am a Jew. Acts 22, verse 3. I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought up in this city, Jerusalem, I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way, that would be Christianity, to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. As the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. It's like, look around. These guys, I was their hatchet man. He says, I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. A couple pages later, Acts 26, Paul shares his testimony again, this time before a Roman ruler. He says, Acts 26, 9-11, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. In other words, he tried to force them through threats and violence to speak bad work, to speak ill of Jesus. Curse them cursed Jesus before them. He says, I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. So the terror of Jerusalem, Saul, took his show on the road many a time. Saul was a massive force in opposition to Christianity. As I said a minute ago, he was the, the hatchet man for the Jewish priests. He was their, I guess you wouldn't say assassin, because he wasn't killing them in the streets, but he was going and dragging them off to prison. And he wasn't content just to do the ones in Jerusalem either. No, he knew that when the persecution against Stephen fell, Stephen was killed, Christians had scattered all over. And so Saul knew if this thing was going to be killed and stamped out, this movement, he had to go track these Christians down. So like a bloodhound, he's sniffing them out. If you're going to eradicate cancer, you have to get it all, or it'll come back, right? So Paul views Christianity as a cancer 
growing within Judaism, and like any good doctor, he's going to remove it all. And so he goes and he leaves for Damascus, 130 miles north. But the Lord had a plan for Saul's life. In verse 2, um, we see that Saul has letters to arrest those who belong to the way. You see that there? Christianity was called the way. Does any of you guys watch the Mandalorian series uh, at all? If not, it's a, they always say at the end, this is the way, right? Well, Christianity was called the way. The way based off Jesus' words. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Christianity was called the way. And there's a play on words here that doesn't show up in all our English translations, but some of them pull this out. Um, in both verse 17 and verse 27, um, the word way is used to describe Paul's journey to Damascus. So if your translation says Paul's journey, he's on a journey to Damascus in verse 17 or verse 27, that's a fine translation. It's the word way there. And it's the same word used to talk about these Christians who are followers of the way in verse 2. So as he's going to, as he's on the way to persecute followers of the way, suddenly Saul himself becomes a follower of the way. There's a deep irony here that Luke is trying to bring out. He's, he's on the way, and he winds up on the way, a part of the way. Did you get it? So, so that's, that's what, like I said, it's subtle, and the, if your translation has the word journey instead of way, that's fine. It's, it, that's, that's what it is. He's on a journey. But that brings out just this little subtlety that is profound here. So Saul's conversion, verses 3 to 19. We've already read it multiple times, so I'm not going to read it again. I just want to point out some highlights here. Do you remember in the book of Acts, who was the last person who had an encounter with the risen and ascended Jesus? An encounter from heaven. Who saw him last or had an encounter with Jesus? It was Stephen. After Stephen gives his sermon to the Jewish Sanhedrin, which Saul was witnessing, we read this, Acts 7, 55 to 56. Stephen looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. He saw the glory of God, which means that Stephen had seen what many prophets before him had seen, this brilliant radiance in the heavens. And he saw, Acts 7.55, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Verse 56, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And as the story goes, when he said that, it sealed his fate. He was the only one seeing what he saw. He was claiming, Stephen, when he said that, he was claiming that he saw what was predicted many hundreds of years before by the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 7, that the Son of Man would ascend the clouds and take the throne. And he says, I see Jesus, and he's there, and he's, while I'm on trial by you, this Son of Man that's in the courtroom of heaven is not seated. He's standing. Jesus is standing, ready to receive Stephen. And when Stephen says that, 
these Jewish accusers, they're blind to it. They do not see what he saw. And they cover their ears and gnash their teeth. And they run at him. And they put him to death. This work was sweaty work, bloody work to stone someone. You use small stones usually to prolong the suffering. And it could take a while. So these men are stripping their coats off, and they have valuable garments, and uh, they don't want the, the rabble of Jerusalem to grab their priestly vestments and take off with them down the street. I don't know if there was a black market for priest clothes, but um, <laughs> they, they obviously are care, care about losing their garments, and so they have a job for this young man named Saul. Watch our clothes. And he's there giving approval the whole time. But now in the story of Acts 9, in this very next story about Saul, it's Saul who sees the brilliant light from heaven. Stephen saw the glory of God, the glory of Jesus, and now Saul sees this brilliant, glorious light. It's Saul who encounters the risen and ascended Lord Jesus. Jesus calls to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? In other words, Jesus is saying, when you touch my people, Saul, you are touching me. You are hurting me. Saul had been blind to the light of Jesus before. Even though he thought he could see the truth about Jesus, that Jesus was just a criminal, deserving of the same fate that they gave Stephen. He thought he could see, but he was blind to what Stephen saw. Now he's blinded by the very light that he was blind to before. So that three days later, Jesus, the risen Christ, can help him see. Once again, you see the irony here? When Saul was on the way, persecuting followers of the way, he thought he could see. But on the way, Jesus met him and blinded him so that he could truly see and become a follower of the way, the truth, and the life. Now, before we move on to the next step here, I just want you to understand for a second what really clicked in that moment and over the next three days for Saul? When Saul encountered the risen Christ in all his glory, okay, Saul's worldview, his, the way he viewed everything, was it was like it was hit by a massive bomb. In one split second, it became clear to Saul that Stephen was not making things up about the location of Jesus. Jesus was not rotting in the grave somewhere. His disciples had not stolen his body like all the religious leaders had paid off the guards to say. That would have been probably the narrative that Saul had bought into. The disciples stole the body of Jesus. He didn't rise. And then he encounters it. Jesus' body was risen. 
speaking, talking. He's not in the grave. He's on the throne. On the throne of heaven. Jesus was alive. Jesus was ascended. He was the Messiah. The Son of Man of Daniel 7 had ridden the clouds, and Saul had been blind to it all. For Saul, this is what you would call like a, a personal Copernican revolution. Copernicus was a scientist who really pioneered the idea that the Earth was not actually the center of our solar system. Kids, what is at the center of our solar system? The sun, yeah, not the earth. Here in our story, Paul suddenly has a vision of the sun, Jesus, calling to him from heaven itself. And the brilliance of Jesus blinds him to show him that his only hope for seeing anything from now on, you want to see anything, Saul? You must turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. And suddenly Jesus becomes the center of Paul's world. In one split second, Paul realizes that everything that he was living for was wrong. Jesus wasn't just a blaspheming, blaspheming messianic pretender who had it out for the temple and priests. No, Jesus was the king of Israel, who he had had. Whether he was a part of it or not, we don't know the part of his story, but he viewed Jesus as a criminal. His friends, the priests who he learned so much from, had he learned everything he knew from them. They had been wrong in putting Jesus to death. And Jesus was the Son of God. So Saul, in that moment, when he sees the ascended Christ, it's like all of a sudden his whole world was turned upside down. Everything he'd been living was reoriented around the Messiah. Saul, your king has come. When we are truly converted to Christ, Jesus becomes the center of your world. Jesus becomes everything. Everything else we seek to think about in relationship to the king. And this is what happened to Saul. Why did Jesus choose this guy? Jesus doesn't show up to everyone this way. I mean, there's many stories of Jesus appearing to people in dreams, directing them to go to a Christian's house and go read the Bible. This happens in the Muslim world, actually, quite often. But what happened here to Saul is pretty radical. This isn't just a dream he sees. The light is real. The blindness is real. Jesus is actually calling his companions here, though they can't understand. Which is the third point we'll look at this morning. Saul's calling. Look at verses 15 and 16 in chapter 9. Why did Jesus call Saul? The Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Jesus has a mission for this bloodthirsty persecutor of the church. Saul will be one to be a light to the world, to the Gentiles, to Roman rulers and kings, to even Caesar himself, and to the Jewish people. 
Saul will suffer, he says. He will be beaten and beaten, whipped and whipped, shipwrecked and shipwrecked and shipwrecked, jailed and jailed and jailed again. Many of our letters from him were written from jail. And they didn't have TV and nice gym to work out in and these jails. They don't really work nice jails. If you wanted to live, you better have hope you have friends on the outside to provide you with food and clothes. He was stoned and left for dead. Yet we have 13 of his letters today. Letters that have shaped the church of Jesus in deeply profound ways. Jesus had a mission for Saul, who eventually became called Paul. And every time we read one of Paul's letters, the mission of Saul of Tarsus, Paul, it continues. Jesus had a mission for Paul to spread the fame of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Now let's look at the fourth and final piece of the story, Saul's ministry. We've seen his radical conversion, his calling. But what amazes me is how quickly Saul begins his ministry after he's baptized. Listen to verses 20 to 22. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners of the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. So, friends, Saul, as soon as he is converted, immediately turns into a passionate preacher. Now, we have to be a little careful here, right? There is a great zeal... As soon as you become a Christian, to spread the news about Jesus, right? And sometimes we see like, and that's a good impulse, and it's great. Sometimes we see um, uh, an athlete or a famous uh, person come to faith in Christ. And what usually happens? Everybody, everywhere is like, give them the microphone. They've been a Christian for one day. You know, we want to we want to hear shout everything that you know about Jesus. You know how much they know about Jesus? Very little. And usually it's not, but they want. Let's build your platform better in the evangelical world. I mean, this is this happens on repeat over and over and over. And within a year, they usually have a book coming out, my conversion story or something, and and publisher site. You know, it's all money driven. I want to just be cynical about it, but it, here's a story that will sell. Um, and and so I don't think this is what's going on here, right? Saul is not your average convert. Saul doesn't have a blank spot in his mind that needs to be filled up with knowledge about Jesus. Saul was a brilliant Jewish scholar. He knew the Old Testament probably by heart. He probably would have had most, if not all, of the entire Old Testament memorized. And now that Saul knew, that now that the click happened in his brain, Jesus is the Messiah, it was like a lightning bolt 
lined everything up, right? Oh, light bulbs were turning off all over the place. He already had heard many of the arguments about the Messiah Jesus. You would have, you know, stories, in other words, as he was dragging these Christians off to prison, he heard their arguments, Jesus is the Messiah. He wasn't new to the block of all this Christianity thing. Saul, once he was saved, he, once he realized Jesus was the Messiah, written about in the law and the prophets and the Psalms, he already had huge categories of what the Messiah would do and be when he came, that he all of a sudden knew how to preach. Now he preached Jesus was the Messiah. And so because of his skill, the Jews of Damascus could not refute him. I mean, they're dealing with a heavy hitter from Jerusalem who already knows all the arguments that they could say. Well, that's wrong. Jesus is, is not the Messiah because this, this, this. He's already heard all the arguments. And now he's a Christian. Oh, that's, that's actually, here's my answer for that. Here's my answer for that. I saw him. Right? And so what do you do when you can't out-talk somebody? The Jews here try to kill him. So he slips away in a basket over the wall and winds up in Jerusalem. Now, I just want to pause here. In the book of Galatians, the apostle Paul describes his conversion. Again, he adds another twist to the story. Galatians 1.13 and following, Paul says this to the Galatians. He says, You have heard of my previous way of life in Jerusalem, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my own people, and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. When God did that, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. But wait, we don't read that in Acts. Later I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, and, that's Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. So in Acts, we don't read about this whole trip to Arabia and then the return again to Damascus. It seems there's a big gap if you look in Acts 9 between verses 22 and 23. Luke is just summarizing stuff for us. In Acts 9, the phrase, after many days, includes a three-year span in which at some point, after preaching in Damascus, after his conversion, at some point, Paul left Damascus, went down to Arabia, and then came back. Why Arabia? Scholars have all kinds of guesses. My own guess is that at some point after his conversion, Paul decided to go climb Mount Sinai, which is in Arabia. My thought would be, 
Others have suggested this. Maybe he wanted to stand where Moses stood and received his own encounter from God. Where Elijah stood and received his own encounter from God. To stand there and meditate on the word of God. To think about his own life and his mission. That's just a guess. Maybe it was just a missions trip. Maybe it was both. But he returns to Damascus. He continues his ministry there. And it was brought to an end when he's forced to flee for his life. His followers let him down over the wall. He escapes in a basket. And since the city gates were carefully guarded, he was basically imprisoned in this city. And so they let him out. And he goes then to Jerusalem, which, as you might remember, that's 130 miles south. Now, the last time that Saul had been in Jerusalem, several years before, he had been jailing Christians and trying all in his power to get them killed. So there had probably been many rumors of his conversion that had spread to Jerusalem. But the Christians there, we read in Acts 9, they still had a hard time accepting whether or not Saul was the real deal. Perhaps... This was all a sham to get on the inside and win their trust only to betray them all and turn them in to the priests and the authorities. So they're wondering, is he really the real deal or is he a secret agent for the temple? But Barnabas, whose name means a son of encouragement, he came and welcomed Saul, risked his life. And he told the apostles, guys, he's the real deal. Maybe Barnabas had heard more about the stories from Damascus. But Barnabas said, listen, right? He suffered much already for the name of Jesus. Let's not add to his suffering by rejecting him. He's on our team. You might be shocked, but this guy is the real deal. Trust me. He's running for his life. Because he was such an incredible preacher, and so many people were coming to faith in Damascus that they ran him out of town. And now he's here. Let's turn him loose, right? And so that's what he does. He hits the Jerusalem streets, full tilt, and in Jerusalem, they're not able to contradict him either. And so they do what the people in Damascus do. And this is now going to be the repeating theme throughout the rest of the book of Acts with with Saul, right? He goes somewhere, he preaches the gospel, the Jews try to kill him, and he goes somewhere else. He goes there, the Jews try to kill him, he preaches to the guys, and they go somewhere, right, right, right. And eventually, he goes back to Jerusalem, he preaches the gospel, the Jews try to kill him, he goes to the Romans, and, and they're like, well, we don't have a problem with you. And he's like, I appeal to Caesar. And he gets an all-expenses-paid uh, missions trip to Rome and preaches the gospel there, and that's where the letter ends. So that's where we're headed. But I'd like us, uh, Ken, I don't know where we're at in the PowerPoint, but I have a slide, if you click through, it'll take a second, but I have a slide that's a map. I just kind of want to help you visualize, before we go into our application, what, what Saul has been doing here. I think it's this next one. Yeah. Okay. So, so this is Jerusalem, right here, and Damascus is 130 miles up there. So in the red... He goes up to Damascus to murder Christians, gets saved, at some point goes all the way down here to 
Arabia. All right, that's a long trek. I don't know how long, it looks maybe like 300 miles-ish. And then he returns back to Damascus and continues preaching there um, in the blue. And then, I guess I didn't draw it, but he goes back to Jerusalem. Oh yeah, the, blue, the light blue. He goes back to Jerusalem and gets run out of town again and he goes all the way up to where he was born, Tarsus, on a, on a ship. All right, so. Can you can go to the next one. So that's the story of Saul. And like I said, Luke here is just providing us a summary in the book of Acts. He's not going into all the details. And, and so he's in Damascus for three years, roughly. And he, during that time, makes many converts. And he goes down to Arabia, comes back, goes to Jerusalem, goes to Tarsus. All right, let's... Uh, conclude with this verse, verse 31. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. I encourage you this week by our first takeaway here, first application. Um, join me in praying this verse for our church. That our church would be strengthened. That we would live in the fear of the Lord. Reverence for Him. That we'd be encouraged by the Holy Spirit. And that the Lord would grow our numbers. As many people come to faith. A couple other applications for us. I just want you to see that this conversion of Saul should really comfort us. When you think about people in your life who you know and who you love, who may seem really, really hard towards Jesus right now. I want you to know that Jesus' arm is not too short to save them, to reach down. He has the power to soften even the hardest of hearts. So keep praying for friends and for loved ones who seem so hardened and so dull to the way of Jesus. The testimony we read, we listened to earlier, where this guy Zechariah opened his Bible, and the guy was the first name in there. Saved, praying, praying for him for years. So keep praying for friends, for those who seem totally uninterested, totally antagonistic towards the faith. You don't know when the light of the risen Christ may blind them and open their eyes at the same time, right? Perhaps they will be the next one to say, I was blind, but now I see. And the second and last thing I'll say, the, the conversion of Saul, it should really encourage you when you think about how much sin that you need forgiveness from God for. The Apostle Paul First called Saul's sins were piled up really high. His mission in life, his sole purpose in his life was to rage against Jesus and against the people of Jesus. He was what we would call a terrorist. And yet God showed him mercy. Listen to Paul's description of this in 1 Timothy 1. 12 to 17. Paul writes, I thank 
Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though I once was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And he says this famous verse, 1 Timothy 1.15. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Paul really believed that. But for this very reason, he says, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul kept telling his testimony over and over and over again. Throughout most of his letters, we get at least a snippet of it. And he wanted people to see his story and say, Jesus is immensely patient and merciful and loving. He saved a murderer who persecuted his church to the death and he had a job for him. And he gave him a second chance working in his service. Jesus saved Saul so that you and I would know deep in the very fiber of our souls that we would know that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, Jesus welcomes sinners. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you came into the world to save sinners. That your arm is not too short to save anybody. And that your mercy is boundless and knows no end. I pray that you would stir us up as we've heard this conversion story. Would you fill us with hope for those that don't know you yet? And may you fill us with a deep desire to... Talk to them about Jesus, and may you comfort us over our own sins, knowing that you are patient and that you love to show mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.